Welcome to another episode of 35 West. My name is Margarita Seminario. I am the Deputy Director of the Americas Program at CSIS. Mexican, but are we ready? I don't reform trends in Argentina. And that's what happened. Role at all in the NAFTA negotiation. Welcome to 35 West. The United States is engaged in efforts to identify, prevent, and prosecute cases of trafficking in persons, including modern slavery and forced labor, as well as adult sex trafficking and child sexual exploitation. These efforts are focused not just on our own communities but throughout the world. This week, we are joined by Ambassador John Richmond to discuss trafficking in persons in Latin America, and specifically in the Andean region. Since 2018, Ambassador Richmond has served as the ambassador at large to monitor and combat trafficking in persons at the U.S. Department of State. He is also the co-funding director of the Human Trafficking Institute and spent over 10 years as a federal prosecutor in the Human Trafficking Prosecution Unit of the Department of Justice. It's an honor to have you here with us, Ambassador. Thanks for joining. Well, it's great to be with you today. Thank you and the CSIS Americas team for this opportunity to join a conversation. I'm grateful for everyone's interest in joining this to learn more about the trafficking challenges throughout this region. Ambassador Richmond, I would like to start by getting a better sense of trafficking in persons within the context of the Andean region. There are several factors that heighten the risk of trafficking. Peru and Venezuela, for example, are home to many informal and illegal mining operations. The region is also home to millions of Venezuelan migrants, many of whom are economically insecure and therefore vulnerable to exploitation. Could you give us a sense of the current trafficking situation in the Andean region, particularly in the context of illegal mining? Absolutely. You know, as we do that, I think it's helpful to just make sure we're talking about the same thing, because there are so many interlocking challenges uh, throughout this region and throughout the issue of human trafficking. The first thing I'd highlight is that human trafficking is a crime of intentional exploitation of someone in commerce. It is all about coercing people to work or coercing people to engage in a commercial sex act. The movement of people across borders or human smuggling is not a crime of coercion necessarily. Sometimes people want to cross the border and they do it voluntarily. They might even pay someone to help them migrate. Those could be crimes against the integrity of borders, but don't necessarily constitute human trafficking crimes, which are forced labor and sex trafficking. So throughout the Indian region, we certainly see significant concerns about human trafficking violations. Um, we see it in sex trafficking as well as forced labor across all industries. You mentioned mining in particular, and mining presents some unique challenges around identifying trafficking cases just due to the remote sites and the difference in the way that we approach law enforcement. But as we think about the vulnerabilities to trafficking, one thing I'd highlight for your listeners is that there are many things that make an individual vulnerable. Poverty makes people vulnerable, lack of education, a lack of access to credit, a bad employment market. Certainly being out of immigration status could make someone vulnerable. And people are made vulnerable by all this, these variety of things to criminals, criminals of all types, whether it's con artists or people who might assault them. And certainly these vulnerabilities are also making people vulnerable to traffickers. Now, the relationship between human trafficking and vulnerability is one worth considering 
because we know that the vulnerabilities themselves do not cause trafficking. Unlike migration that has push factors and pull factors, human trafficking doesn't have such factors. The only pushing and pulling that might happen is when a trafficker is seeking to coerce someone. So instead of push and pull factors, trafficking is caused by the intentional decision of a trafficker. But here's where the relationship to vulnerability comes in. Traffickers want to target vulnerable people because they believe they're easier to coerce, they're easier to control, and it would require fewer coercive resources on the part of the trafficker. So when we think about all of these vulnerabilities, we know that they don't cause trafficking. If they did, then everyone who was vulnerable would end up being a trafficking victim. But we also know that traffickers are targeting the vulnerable. And so we want to do several things here. We want to stop traffickers who are engaging in these offenses. We want to restrain them, prevent them from trafficking other people. But we also want to make sure that we care for the victims, make sure that there's trauma-informed, victim-centered care to help stabilize them and help them recover from their trauma. But then we also want to think about how to prevent this crime, which requires us to think about how can we reduce vulnerabilities that traffickers are currently targeting? How do we think about making sure that our prevention efforts are making it more difficult for traffickers or making it more risky for traffickers? And if we're doing those things, I think our prevention efforts are going to be more successful. Let me pause for a second, though, and shift back to your mining concern. We see throughout extractive industries around the world, and certainly true in the Andean region, a significant number of indicators that suggest that forced labor is rampant. This is made difficult, though, when we think about how to stop these cases of forced labor or even how to identify the victims. Let me give you an example. When we think about a sex trafficking case, which is probably what your listeners most commonly think of when they hear the term human trafficking. We think about something that commercial sexual activity is normally illegal in most countries. We think about things that where a customer has to come into contact with one of the victims by definition for a commercial sex act. Lots of opportunities for police, for communities to identify cases and refer them so that something can be done. Uh, sex trafficking is often, if it's not out in the open, it's certainly notorious for the places that it occurs and we know where to target our efforts to identify cases. We can use traditional investigative techniques to find out where that's happening. Now, contrast that with mining. Mining happens in very secluded regions. The individuals who are victims never need to come into contact with, with the ultimate buyer of the substance being extracted whether it's gold or something else. The purchaser never necessarily has to meet the person who's digging it out of the ground. Often, these individuals who are mining are living in camps with close quarters, monitored with limited amounts of movement, but also limited amounts of opportunity for law enforcement to do surveillance or to build an operative or informant network to gather information. These also require long-term proactive investigations, because pulling a substance out of the earth is not in and of itself a crime. We've not criminalized extractive industries, unlike commercial sexual activity, which has been criminalized. We've merely criminalized the coercive employment of workers, that we can't force individuals to work to extract it. But identifying that coercion can be difficult. It requires building relationships. It requires long-term investigations. It requires looking beyond the surface and digging into what is actually going on building trust with victims. And so mining industries are very much a matter of concern for the United States. It's something when we're engaging with countries throughout the Indian region, we bring up quite frequently. How has the COVID-19 pandemic had an effect on the uh, human trafficking situation in the Andean region? You no, know, we're living 
with this COVID pandemic, as well as the government shutdown orders in real time, they've had a significant impact. And I think we're just now getting anecdotes in. Hopefully data will be streaming in soon. And I think it may take a long time for us to really assess the impact of what it has meant. But here are a couple of things that I've learned from listening sessions with implementers throughout the Andean region, as well as around the world, listening to survivors of trafficking, as well as hearing from government and law enforcement. A couple of themes have arisen. One is that the vulnerable are being made more vulnerable by this crisis. So if you are already a person or a family in poverty, if you are already unemployed, if you are already for some reason, on the outskirts of society, your situation has gotten worse. And so if traffickers are targeting vulnerable people, they might more likely target those individuals who have, in a sense, been made more vulnerable. A second thing we've noticed is that the number of vulnerable people is increasing. That is that the raw number of individuals who are vulnerable in one of these situations is growing. It could be growing because businesses have shut down and unemployed workers that once had jobs that supported their families. And now those individuals are migrating away from the urban areas and back into their original communities or to other places. Those, the sheer number of individuals are becoming more vulnerable. So think about this. If traffickers, in a sense, were seeking out vulnerable people, now it feels like they're fishing in a stocked pond. There are lots and lots of vulnerable individuals for traffickers to choose from. A third thing we've noticed about COVID is that it's becoming more and more difficult for survivors of trafficking, people who have found their freedom again, who have been separated from their trafficker, ability for them to stabilize, to recover from their trauma has been made more difficult because perhaps support groups aren't meeting anymore. Perhaps shelters have fewer beds because of social distancing, or perhaps just because of a lack of funding as philanthropy shifts in this new environment. I think more and more we've seen worries that trafficking victims are being told to quarantine with their traffickers. And far too often, home is not safe. And it's actually family members that are trafficking other family members. So it's made it more difficult for survivors of trafficking and for current victims of trafficking. And then fourth, we've noticed a deep concern about whether or not law enforcement and government courts All the protective arms of government that work in this space, from social services to the criminal justice system, as they begin to focus more and more on public health and public order, are they able to maintain their emphasis on proactive human trafficking investigations? And our worry is that if they take their eye off the ball, if they get distracted, it only works to the benefit of the traffickers. Because one thing we definitely have seen is that traffickers are not shutting down. They are continuing to innovate. They're continuing to operate. They're continuing to find ways to exploit people. One example is a significant rise in online sex trafficking. That is where perhaps individuals can't meet in person anymore. They're engaging in commercial sex acts via the internet. And we've seen a significant increase in child sexual abuse material that's available online. We're hearing many countries report concerns about this. And I think it's going to be a pattern that that we see across the world. But the reality is that we still have a lot to learn about the impact of these shutdowns and the impact of the virus on the issue of human trafficking. But the theme behind it all is that it's working for the benefit of the traffickers and not the victims. 2020 marks the 20th anniversary of the UN Palermo Protocols. What progress has been made over the last 20 years? You're right to note that, and this is a great month to do it. You know, This month is the 20th anniversary of the United States Trafficking Victims Protection Act that passed in 2000. About six weeks after the United States passed its comprehensive trafficking law, 
folks met in Palermo, Italy, and adopted the UN protocol on trafficking in persons. And the two are have very similar approaches. So what's happened in the last 20 years is your question. I think we can point to several things that are remarkable successes. One is around legal frameworks. So 20 years ago, you know, there was almost no country in the world that had a comprehensive human trafficking statute that addressed all three Ps, that is prosecution, protection, and prevention. The United States passed its law, and now we have about 154 countries around the world that have comprehensive human trafficking statutes. And over 170 countries have adopted the UN's Palermo Protocol against trafficking in persons, making the UN protocol one of the most widely adopted international legal instruments in existence. So what we've gone from is 220 years ago, there was basically open and notorious trafficking all around the world. Countries approved it democratically, cultures accepted it, religions endorsed it. And we've now moved to a place since 2000 where there is a grand consensus that trafficking is wrong. And now actually in every country in the world, there is some sort of law against human trafficking. That's a massive accomplishment. It's a massive reason to celebrate the progress that has been made since Palermo in the last 20 years. So we now have uh, good legal frameworks that we can use. The question is, are we going to use them? Now that we've built out this legal structure, we actually need a delivery system of justice to help the people in most need of the law's protections. If not, we just have parchment promises, words written on paper. And I've never met a victim who thought, I need another UN resolution or I need another parliament to act. They want their pain to stop. And so we actually need new actors. We need people who are going to deliver social services to people in need throughout the Andean region. We're going to need law enforcement and courts to deliver criminal justice to the victims uh, throughout the Andean region. And that's going to be the challenge for the next generation is can we take those parchment protections of law and extend them to the people they were intended to protect? And so I think that is one of the accomplishments of the last 20 years. Another, just to let you know, would be survivor engagement. 2000, when this work started, survivors were a part of the conversation from time to time, but there was nothing particularly regular about it. And then slowly over the years, survivors were included more and more, but often to tell their story, to bring a face to the statistics, to share the trauma that they experienced as a way to make it real to policymakers, to make it real to the general public and raise awareness about the issue. But we quickly began to learn that doing that often re-traumatized victims. It also felt quite voyeuristic, asking survivors to consistently repeat their worst stories of trauma and abuse. And we've really shifted to thinking about survivors as leaders, to think about survivors as people with opinions and insights into policy and how we can improve. And now we've moved to including survivors as advisors. They review the grants that the United States State Department makes around trafficking in persons to make sure that their opinions can be included in our review. They've helped design trainings for law enforcement. And having survivors having a seat at the table, whether it's through a presidentially appointed advisory council of survivors or whether it's through more informal conversations, making sure that survivors are compensated for their wisdom as they provide it to NGOs and to governments. I think we've come a long way in the last 20 years around how we treat survivors as leaders within the movement. Shifting gears a little bit, I would like to discuss your office's efforts to identify and combat trafficking. Every year, the Office to Monitor and Combat Trafficking in Persons, the TIP office, publishes a report 
that identifies global trends and classifies countries into a tier system based on their efforts and ability to combat trafficking. Within the Andean region, Colombia was in tier one, the highest tier, while Peru, Bolivia, and Ecuador were in tier two and Venezuela in tier three. How does this tier system work? For example, what is Colombia doing that Peru, Bolivia, and Ecuador are not? The law that we just talked about, the Trafficking Victims Protection Act that was passed in 2000, set up the office that I now get to serve in and established a report that had to be written every year. It was supposed to categorize countries' work around all three Ps, prosecution, protection, and prevention, but then also assign a ranking on tier one all the way down to tier three. And the ranking is around a set of minimum standards that were articulated in in the law that included both having the right legal framework as well as implementation. Implementation around all three Ps, that is making sure that there are sufficient investigations, prosecutions, and convictions, as well as thinking about how to make sure trauma-informed services get to the people in most need. So tier one doesn't mean a country is perfect. It doesn't mean that they're not room for improvement. You correctly highlighted that the Columbia is on tier one, but we've also consistently noted that Columbia has a long way to go, particularly in providing and protecting services to labor trafficking victims and to protect Venezuelan migrants who are in Colombia and vulnerable to trafficking in persons. We've consistently raised issues around victim identification being being remarkably low. So I just want to be clear that a tier one ranking, whether it's for Colombia or for the United States, which is also on tier one, does not suggest that everything is perfect. It just means that they're meeting the minimum standards and they need to do more in the future. And so I'm hopeful that Colombia will work to improve in all sorts of areas. For instance, Colombia decreased its arrest by 57% last year. It has a long way to go. But overall, we saw increasing efforts, even though we saw a drop in arrests and investigations. That's tier one. Tier one is it's doing okay. It's meeting the minimum standards. It needs to do more, but it is meeting those minimums. Then tier two, then there's the tier two watch list all the way down to tier three. Tier three means that a country is not only not meeting the minimum standards, but it's not making sufficient efforts to do so. And tier three comes with some restrictions. If a country's on tier three, it loses all non-humanitarian aid to the government. There are several other caveats about the type of aid that is restricted, but for the countries on tier three, and I believe there are 19 around the world this year on tier three, many of them do not get waivers from the president about those restrictions. And therefore, they're going to lose a lot of foreign aid and perhaps have adverse consequences in international monetary institutions. So we take seriously each of these tiers. One of the things that I'm grateful to my predecessors for is that the TIP report has really remained the gold standard on trafficking information over the years. We work hard to make sure that it's a report based on facts, that the report has integrity, so that it's not subject to the political whims of the day. And so as we look at the Andean region, obviously we've got everything from tier one to a tier three country. And to each of those countries, we're committed to engaging. We're committed to making sure that we can come alongside them, not just with a ranking, but with our partnership, our programming money and our support so that they can do better. I would love to hear more about the programming, in particular in this subregion, and I would love to hear more about what has been successful and, and where is there more room for doing things better? You know, one of the things that I'm particularly excited about in this region is our Child Protection Compact partnership with Peru. And the Child Protection Compact is a different way to approach foreign assistance. 
and a child protection compact, we actually work with the government to enter into a memorandum of understanding where the government of Peru made some commitments about what they were going to do to improve on fighting human trafficking. And the United States made financial commitments about how it could come alongside NGOs or international organizations within the country to assist them. And so we entered into an agreement about how to approach trafficking, and then we commit to a longer term play. So far too often, there's a 12-month or 24-month grant cycle. With our child protection compacts, we focus on a five-year plan, uh, trying to elongate that period of time so we can see clear and structural reform. Now, the child protection compacts focus on both sex trafficking and forced labor, obviously focused on children. So we're grateful for the investment that we have made in Peru around the child protection compact. Could you please share with us how you work with implementers? What kind of of programming do they do? Um, and, And how do we bring together not just the government actors, but is there a role for the private sector in all of this? I'd love to, because our implementers are doing incredible work around the world. Like we have a project in Ecuador, a $1.5 million project that's really focused on improving the legal frameworks and the policies related to human trafficking, trying to define focused legislation that's aligned with international standards. And the Ecuadorian government has been open to that. It's also trying to strengthen the capacity of community-based organizations who really know what's going on, who are there day in and day out to help them identify labor and sex trafficking victims and then offer technical support to the attorney general's office in Ecuador. You know, I mentioned the Child Protection Compact in Peru. We're also doing a project with the ABA Rule of Law Initiative in Madre de Dios, which you mentioned mining earlier. There's definitely some mining challenges in Madre as well as Puno. Working with ABA around some justice sector reforms there, CHS in Peru is also part of some funding that's outside of the Child Protection Compact that does remarkable and encouraging work. Another thing that we do is training and technical assistance. So outside of a long-term investment of foreign assistance with NGOs to a country, we also do some very short-term things. We do some things that are targeted around training. For instance, in Bolivia, UNODC, the United Nations Office on Drugs and Crime, has done a project for criminal justice practitioners, training them on how to do mock trials, how to host roundtable discussions of stakeholders throughout the country. These training and technical assistance grants are particularly helpful in pulling people together, making sure we've got good national action plans, good national referral mechanisms, good victim identification standard operating procedures so that a country can begin to put those to use. So we're grateful for each of those implementers. You mentioned businesses and the private sector. And I'd just like to touch on the fact that it's incredibly important that we involve business and corporations in the work to fight forced labor. And I think it's because they have such an incredible voice. And many of the leaders of businesses I meet are well-intentioned. They don't want forced labor affecting their supply chains, but they also aren't quite sure what to do about it. And so we've called on businesses to engage in due diligence to make sure that they're vetting and mapping their supply chains to determine if there's forced labor there, to make sure their own procurement policies don't allow for products to be purchased that are tainted with forced labor. And to make sure there are clauses and contracts and training protocols in place within the companies to make sure that there is no forced labor. And we also know that we want to hold companies accountable if they do knowingly or with reckless disregard benefit from a forced labor enterprise. We want to make sure those products can't be shipped into the United States. We want to make sure that those companies are held responsible, whether it's in South America or it's here in the U.S. Seeing businesses as both allies and individuals or associations that must be held accountable is an important aspect of this. And one last aspect for supply chains, I would just mention 
that we want to make sure that businesses and corporations are using their voice to encourage governments to implement the recommendations of the TIP report. We know that we cannot ask businesses to be a workaround a failed public justice system. And in the case of many victims of trafficking around the world, it often feels like the justice system is failing them. So encouraging governments to improve the infrastructure of the justice system, to improve the infrastructure of the social services system is an important role that businesses can play. My last question for you would be, is there an opportunity for countries to exchange practices or tackle particular problems as as a subregion? Absolutely. There are many opportunities for countries to to work together. Uh, An obvious one would be the uh, Organization of American States. As many countries in Central America in particular, and a few in the Andean region, suffer from a common problem with their legal frameworks. That is, they have force, fraud, and coercion, or the means element of trafficking, as an aggravating factor instead of an essential element of the crime. And OAS has been helpful in calling these countries together to reform that and for them to change their laws so that coercion and the means element is actually part of the crime itself. UNODC has also hosted regional events where ideas can be shared. We certainly work regionally as well as bilaterally trying to help countries benefit from the best practices that one country might be seeing. The other aspect of regional cooperation and the need for it that has been highlighted is the Venezuelan migration crisis which is a common struggle for many of the countries throughout the region, whether it's Ecuador, Peru, Bolivia, Chile. There are many countries that are struggling with the impact of the Venezuelan migrants, making sure that they who are vulnerable are protected from traffickers and that traffickers are not choosing to exploit them. Ambassador, it's been a pleasure. We're grateful for your time and we appreciate your public service. Thank you so much. For you, thank you again for joining. Stay tuned for the next episode of 45 West.